This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee. Ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee. Ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Errol Sampson Folk, and today I'm bringing on a friend, a colleague, Louis Zatzman, after the week of Zatzman, in which we were exposed to some fantastic pieces from him, and I brought him on to talk about them and the Raptors at large. Louis, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great, buddy. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to be chatting with you on these. That's so nice of you to say. And the, outside of the basketball, before we get into it, is there anything interesting going on in your life? New flower bed, anything like that? New plant? No, no. I mean, we. So, um, as your listeners would probably know, I got married this past summer, and I had a friend uh, give us a bonsai tree and tell us it represented our marriage, which is great. And I killed it the other day. I watered it for too long. I left it in for a few hours, and it it got some mold. So I'm dealing with the fallout from that, which is, you know, fantastic. So it's dead, dead. There's no chance it. We're leaving it. it we're back. keeping it around. Uh, the leaves are still quite, um, quite sad looking. So we'll see if it comes back. I hope so. Bonsai trees are cool. It's like a small tree, and I guess that's <laughs> the whole appeal, right? Small tree, dead marriage. It's both. Yeah, exactly. This represents your marriage. Why don't I? What? Okay. Let's dive into that really quick, if you're comfortable. What is the allegory, then, for if the bonsai plant is your marriage and you killed it by watering it too long, what is the allegory for marriage behavior that is watering the plant too long? Oh, it's definitely uh, rolling over in bed and, and cuddling while you're sleeping. You get so hot and sweaty, it's overwatering both literally and metaphorically, you know, emotionally you're overwatering. And it's horrible. You can't sleep. You wake up all in a fuss. It's, yeah, I say that's definitely the same behavior. Okay, so a sweaty overbearance is exactly. what overwatering. Okay, I've got you. I think that tracks. <laughs> and to track what you've written and maybe to meld three of your pieces together right off the start, the two-for-one piece, the Fred piece, and the Terrence piece, 
are the Raptors and the 905 two for oneing the NBA? Oh wow, that's great! I love that. Um, I think the 905 is like cannot be discussed enough, just for how well it's done. You know, for the Raptors, it's been fantastic, not just for players, for coaches, for I mean, media staff, for journalists. I mean. That was where I started covering. It's just, it's been so phenomenal. And, and the more light under the sun it gets, the happier I am. What is the standout characteristic of the 905 that somebody who's new to that, I guess, organization under the Raptors should know about? What do they do that really sets them apart among, I'm sure, a whole ocean of things that they do? Planning. They definitely exist to serve the Raptors. Um, and they they do so in a, in a way that is very long reaching. I think a lot of teams just throw players down there and say, you know, go get some minutes, go score some points. But they have very similar playbooks. Um, I know Jamma Malela, the head coach for the second year in a row, has told me that you know a lot of the stuff he runs is uh, specific to the players to get them caught up on different positions, different um, scenarios, not just to get them scoring points and comfortable in the game, but actually caught up on the Raptors' systems. Uh, they are years down the line, you know, they, they uh, try to launch a bunch of threes or they tried the, the really hyperactive defense they did last year, even though they didn't have the personnel for it. They do things for the, the upper, the parent squad, the Raptors, which you'd think would mean less success for the 905. It's actually incredible that they were able to win a championship a few years ago, be it the finals twice other than that. Um, so it's incredible they have their own success while also really uh, uh, intentionally existing to serve the parent club. How do you think, do you think there would be any qualms with that? Because there's this idea, obviously, that at the NBA level, organizations tank, but players don't, where at the 905 level, if the organization is planning years ahead and organizing things for the players to enact a lot of the, I guess, fringe schemes that the Raptors don't have the time to or the want to, do you think that it's tough for players to take that in stride? Or do you think the Raptors 905 are specifically taking in players who will enact that ethos? I think both. Uh, I think the 905 is a good example where even though it's not the highest leverage, they still have a good people-only policy. Um, you saw that with Kay Felder getting sent out last year, which was a low-stakes move, but still the right one. Um, and so they do want guys who will see the, the long-term value of what they're doing, for sure, and who will fit in that role. But at the same time, just because you're running plays for the Raptors or you're enacting harebrained schemes for the Raptors, you also are expected to succeed. You know, just because you're running a play, if you don't do it well, you won't see the floor. You know, it's still very much a competitive environment. And Malalela has um, talked about that with, with staff, where, you know, he is expected to succeed, uh, to win games, while also doing things that aren't really um, his call. For, for what type of plays to run, et cetera. Really difficult, but also really high-caliber high building material and also important for analysis as well to see what guys are made of. I agree with that wholeheartedly, I would say. And before we get into the two-for-one aspect of it, that is 
to some people was a fringe idea for a long time to launch shots without with abandon and to just get an extra possession instead of valuing the possession at hand. The NBA hasn't fully accepted that. There's some point guards who have been gaming the system. Even Chris Paul has been known to do the four for three, those types of plays if he's planning far enough ahead, if he can yeah. get it there. Is there something else that the Raptors 905 is doing that you think will bear fruit at the NBA level right now? Oh, that's a great question. I, I wish I had an answer. I haven't been covering them as closely. I've probably only watched three games, two and a half. Um, so I'm not as plugged in this year as I have been in the past. Um, I know that they are they really do try to stretch the floor. Like some of the the X's in on the practice court where, you know, guys are expected to stand are occasionally, you know, three feet behind the line, something that the Houston Rockets famously do in practice. Um, but I think the Raptors are already doing that. Uh, so I, I'm not sure. I wish I had a better answer, but I bet there's tons. Well, I think that's a that's a tough question anyway. That's something that might come to light in a... That's like an access journalism answer. You've been talking to GMs about what they think A and B are in relevance to C and D as far as the NBA. So I don't think it's bad that it's out of your scope for now, but probably not forever. And to get into the two-for-one thing, it's clear in your piece about the Raptors' two-for-ones that Kyle Lowry, Nick Nurse, and Fred Van Vliet are all pretty forward-thinking when it comes to basketball. In the conversations you have with them about it, do you find that they're excited about gaming the system in that way? Or is it a reluctant acceptance of where the game is at and the game theory of how it acts out in that way? It's definitely excitement. Uh, I only got a chance to chat with Fred for the piece. And I should mention, uh, this goes back further than even uh, Nick Nurse, Fred, Kyle Lowry. I didn't mention it in the piece. But Fred gave love to Dwayne Casey and Rex Kalamian as well for being big proponents of it. Um, so it's a, it's a thing the Raptors have adopted for a long time. But I think it's a good example of what makes Fred Van Vliet who he is. A guy who has always had to overcome challenges. And by always overcoming the challenges of your height, your athleticism in the NBA, being undrafted, you find ways to, to gain advantages. Kyle Lowry is very similar. And a two-for-one is just one way where, you know, the, the point guards who can jump over everyone don't need it, so they probably don't adapt that into their game as, as smoothly. Whereas Fred has been, you know, finding ways to game the system and enjoying it for a long time. Uh, so he is definitely a big proponent of, uh, you know, the analytics, even if he wouldn't use that word necessarily, uh, and not just one who is forced to do it from above. I think this enters into probably the most interesting conversation that can be had about Van Vliet. I think you use the term getting better at the margin somewhere in either the two-for-one piece or your Van Vliet piece from earlier this week. And he really does. The margins of the game is where he looks to maximize what other players aren't maximizing. And yet, he got a finals MVP vote from Hubie Brown. He showed up huge in the playoffs where the margins are supposed to be slimmer and the advantages you can take during the regular season aren't as often there, which is why players like DeMar DeRozan have had a tougher time in mm. the postseason. Why is Fred Van Vliet able to transcend those margins in both the regular season and in a crunch time finals game? I think a lot of it is instinctual. 
And so guys may know, you know, inherently uh, a three is better than a two, for example. But if you have to be drilled and taught to step back behind the line rather than launch a pull-up mid-ranger, then it doesn't come as naturally to you. If you have to think about it, the advantage will already have evaporated. Defenses close those gaps so quickly. Whereas Van Fleet, that's just his game. He prefers the three to the long two. I mean, you can see this year his range is really extended. Uh, he takes he has a similar shot profile in the numbers, but if you actually look at the threes he's taking, he's taking them from further away. Especially, I mean, above the arc, he's taking a lot of 30-foot bombs this year, in transition especially. And so it's not just, you know, analytics guys tell the coach, the coach in, uh, in, endorses this wisdom or, or whoever it works in franchises. This is actually Van Vliet himself just inherently knowing what the margins are. Have you ever asked him about his shot mechanics? To me, they remind me a lot of Steph Curry. Have you ever noticed that? I haven't. There was that great piece from Eric Kareen other last year or two years ago about his shot having a little funky side spin. I remember that. I, I've never asked him about his shot itself. How does it remind you of Steph's? They both have, it looks like the same pickup point. They Neither of them jump a lot on their shot. And like you addressed in your piece regarding his defense about balance and strength, and also that Steph Curry had the best deadlift on the Warriors in the 2016 season that a lot of Steph's finishing ability, his core, his balance and strength is also the biggest part of his jump shot as well. Of course, it looks pretty up top, but both of them build from so low and they both have really quick releases that I think when you watch them side by side, yes, Steph's is a little more pure because Fred is a little bit more of a stocky guy and Steph is a little bit longer. But I think that side by side, they're, the bottom half of their jump shot, I think is really similar, the low build. But the release, I think there's a little bit different. But I was, I'm was i not surprised that Fred can release from 30 feet away with regularity because he has such a solid base. And I've always thought a Steph Curry-like base. That's a fascinating comparison. And just to add on to it, you know, in agreement, um, Nick talked a lot this week about how much he loves Terrence. And he, even though his numbers, Terrence Davis's numbers, weren't fantastic as a shooter. People thought he wouldn't be a shooter in the NBA. Nick Nurse talked about how much he loved his core strength, his, you know, his waist down on his jump shot, and how much that that base gave him an advantage coming into the NBA, and how his athleticism translated into being a shooter and not just, you know, finisher, defender, etc. So uh, interesting that you would pick up as well on that and how how many different uh, intricacies there are in a jump shot. Yeah, well, it's. It seemed apparent to me for the last two years because of Fred Van Vliet. Just like I said, the the profile was really similar to Steph Curry's and the mechanics. But it's cool to see that not only has he went from being like a thirty three percent three point shooter to now genuinely because of the how deep he pulls from, how good he is when people go under the screen, and how great he is as a spot up threat, as you noted in your piece that I genuinely, I would put Fred Van Vliet as a top 15 or top 10 three-point shooter in the league. And that is probably, and well, I wanted to ask you this question later on, but maybe we'll get into it now. That, to me, seems like his biggest step, and that allows his game to be what it is. But have you noticed any other meaningful developments from Van Vliet this year so far? I think his 
his injury or not um, with his ankle, uh, I know he's, he might have had a little bit of, uh, I forget, shoulder, back. There was something troubling him the other day. Um, but it's tough to know what is his, health, his peak healthiness. So you saw in the first game, his east to west um, explosion was better than it had been. You know, his athleticism with the dribble, his ability to create and get to the rim. Uh, if His finishing may not have improved, but his ability to get there had. Um, he hasn't had that other than in one or two games since. So it's tough to say if that's a real development, a hot streak, if it's impacted by injuries. Um, his passing has definitely improved. I think his vision, his willingness to send early beat passes. Um, I think that's a, a really clear improvement is his ability to mi- manipulate the other nine guys in the pick and roll. Um, but other than that, I think definitely his ability to take on a, a bigger load without decreasing your efficiency. That's huge. Guys talk about improvement being, um, you know, per minute, but being able to keep the same per minute numbers and efficiency in bigger minutes, that's a huge improvement. That's not just staying the same. Yeah, that is, and also that the Raptors are winning while it's happening. Of course, he has Siakam and a really good defense to rally around him, a defense that he's a core and integral part of, of course, but mm-hmm. not losing the efficiency while also being the lead guard on a team that has the second-best SRS in the league and is undeniably probably top six league-wide, even without Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka right now. That's a huge step for Van Vliet. And as far as, I'm going to posit something, as far as Fred Van Vliet, um, for the listeners, and I'm sure you know this already, but last year I wrote about Kyle Lowry, why he's able to finish so well at the rim. I've also written about in the past on another site about Victor Oladipo, how he was able to go from being a 58% shooter at the rim to 68 67%. It starts with both Kyle Lowry and Victor Oladipo. It starts with the pull-up three which allows you a lot more agency to get to the cup. Like you were saying with Fred Van Vliet, he's getting to the basket way more often. He's not getting stopped at the 45. He's not getting walled off. All that's really important, but the biggest difference for a guy like Kyle Lowry is how he pays attention to, A, the help side defense, and he's much better at that, at timing that out than Fred Van Vliet is, and Kyle Lowry finishes off both feet which really, really affects how the defense can time out if they're going to block his shot or not. Fred Van Vliet, as it stands right now, is pretty much only finishing off his left foot. And the steps he takes when he's finishing around the basket are easily tracked for help side defenders. So they can follow him, swat him at the rim, or contest really well. Kyle Lowry, farther along in his career, has had a longer time to adjust as a lead guard, etc. Kyle's great. Fred's great. But Fred doesn't have the mixing of the foot, the mixing of the release to uh, add into his repertoire yet. I'm waiting to see that happen because I did think that his timing in the opening game against the Pelicans, his explosion was really good. But he's still finishing off that left foot, still going up the same way. But the physical package is there, as you highlighted in your piece, where you're saying like his core is really good, his his handle is really good. His touch around the rim is really good. It's just how close the big guys are getting. And he can help fend them off later on in his career, hopefully even later on in this year, by switching up which foot he's finishing off of because that really does 
loads of damage to outside defenders. But yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. No, I agree completely. And, and I think the point, you know, the specifics of how to improve, there's tons of ways. But the point is that he can be a better finisher without growing six inches, right? Like the, the package is there, different feet, different release points, better weight transfer. You know, there's ways to do it. And Kyle Lowry is the perfect example. Um, that So his finishing is improvable. I think he's already, he's got the base package down because he already knows how to use his body. He's really tight keeping the ball in. He can finish far away from his body with both hands, which is a really, really impressive thing to do and really important. That's why Kyrie Irving is so incredible around the basket because his radius of how and where he can release the ball is incredible and his core strength. Van Vliet already has a lot of those. It's just how he's switching up the feet, and that's that's so interesting to me, and I hope it comes along because he's been so good. And kind of a tough question I have for you. Is Van Vliet a majorly improved passer, or is he running through more of the Raptors' primary sets with better players? If it's the former, how has he improved in your mind? That's a good question. Uh, that's actually an excellent question. I think his passing has improved. Um, it would be really hard to separate from his minutes, his you know his his minutes alongside. He's playing the whole game this year. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> his, his minutes alongside better players. Um, but what I see specifically in his passing that's better, I mentioned earlier, his ability to release the pass before the play has developed. You know, hit where the guy is supposed to be. I didn't see a ton of that last year, and he's doing that more this year. Uh, I also see more of him gnashing the pick and roll. He's always been a, a high dribble player. I think it's around 4.5 dribbles per possession, something on average, and it's been consistent every year of his career. But with those extra dribbles, or with those same number of dribbles, he's doing more to threaten the defense. So that's not passing per se, but it does create the room for passing. You know, he's better at drawing help defenders, which makes, even if you're the same level of passer, which makes better passes available. Um, he is better at uh, bringing the ball into the other side of the court, gnashing, as I said. Uh, he's better at finding the corners, although he's always been pretty solid at that. Uh, he's always been a pretty good passer to three-point shooters. Um, so it's, as, as you asked, I don't know if I have a really solid answer to that that separates last year from this, but uh, maybe just the margins. Why? What do you think? I, I think I agree with you touched on the major point is he's far more dangerous in the pick and roll in how he's leading either the short roll in or the fade, whichever action the big man is running. It's unfortunate that Marcus All has not taken advantage of the short roll this year because I think if, if Ibaka was running the short roll next to Van Vliet for this past little slew of games that would be a lot more assists a lot more points in that area because I think Van Vliet has gotten really good at that pass but also you brought it up we've talked about this before but gnashing the pick and roll last year he used to do it a lot he's always dribbled a lot as you mentioned but it's the danger that comes with gnashing the pick and roll you can look towards Ricky Rubio in the FIBA World Cup when yeah. he gnashes the pick and roll it's immediately red alert for the defense because he gets the the big to switch onto him he would lob it into Marcus all like yeah. that action created turmoil for the defense 
And whereas last year, Fred Van Vliet, usually that just led to a reset and just kind of milking the clock. I think this year there is danger to that. A, because he's extended his range. He's extended his pull-up capability, which means that when he gets the switch, he's not dependent on trying to get by a big and driving into the defense, maybe getting blocked. His pull-up game is better. He's more dangerous when he pulls the big out. And especially with Pascal Siakam in tow, getting mismatches anywhere on the floor means that it's potentially really good for Siakam's offense. That's really good of Van Vliet to do. And he's passing really well after gnashing the pick and roll. So that's where I think he's improved, and I think you were right on to mention it. I agree completely. Serge Ibaka is a great example because I wrote that piece last year about the two-man game between Fred and Ibaka off the bench. Uh I, incorrect, I drew incorrect assumptions because I looked at every assist uh, and Serge Ibaka not, didn't have a single basket off of Fred assist, at least before I wrote the piece. I think from like inside of 10 feet or something, they all led to little jumpers, floaters. I thought that would be a reasonable plan B, plan C in the playoffs off the bench. It was not. Um, whereas this year, actually, I think you saw in the first game or, or quite early on, a Fred assist go to Serge Ibaka for a dunk, which hadn't happened before, really. Uh, he's just much better at hitting rollers. Yeah, well, that was even whether it was game one or the preseason, basically the Van Vliet Ibaka pick and roll was tearing teams up. A, yeah. because Ibaka is aging like a fine wine. He's, he's so really, good. his timing on the dive and his nose for when to short roll, not to mention he's getting better at passing off the short roll. Just, a lot of great things to love, but that's an aside. But Van Vliet, really, really good making the pass this year. And that was, you and I have talked, that is our major disagreement last summer was, what is Fred going into this year? And definitely leaning towards you being more correct than I was. <laughs> Van Vliet, immediately, it was apparent in that preseason game that the pick and roll acumen had stepped up a certain degree. And he was able to manipulate not just run the action looking for the dive man or looking for the pass to the short roll. It's that that is an aspect of the pick and roll while Fred Van Vliet runs it that he uses to manipulate the defense elsewhere to create other looks. And that's why the pick and roll is such an amazing tool set for any point guard, any player really. And to see Fred encapsulate that and become better at it has been a huge part of his progression. And it's something I've loved to see. So yes, Big, uh, big fan of Fred's uh, passing improvement and glad that you highlighted it in your piece. The last Thanks. question I have, yeah, yeah. The last question I have about Van Vliet, regarding him in your piece, you said he's averaging 17.2 points, 7.6 assists, four rebounds, and 1.8 steals per game, which is insane. And he's also shooting 39.5% from downtown. The number of players in history who have done that over a season can be counted on two hands. Includes Steph Curry, Larry Bird, John Stockton, Chris Paul. Mark Price was the lowest picked at 25th overall. That's rare company. This is me talking now. That's rare company. Do you think he can do it over the full season? And if not, what part of his game might fall off? Well, I don't think he can do it over the full season just because of minutes. I mean... He's doing that averaging 40 minutes a game, <laughs> it's, yeah. and he won't be when Lowry comes back. So, so no, I, I think all of it will fall off just by virtue of his permanent numbers will stay the same, hopefully, when, when Lowry comes back and he'll be in fewer minutes. Um, I think what's most likely to fall off, other than just in you know the totals, 
Uh, his scoring could foreseeably take a dip. His finishing is such a it's such a, a feast or famine type situation. And so you could see a few weeks where he gets blocked a lot at the rim. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't he misses some open ones sometimes, especially when he's looking to draw a foul. So you could see a situation where Toronto um, maybe runs with Kyle or and uh, Kyle and Powell, for example, for for more minutes in a game. Uh, I think his defense will keep him on the floor, though. I think his passing is pretty consistent. That's harder to be a uh, harder to to have like a a hot streak as a passer. Uh, and I think his shooting is just so proven. That's that's a given at this point. Well, I was gonna say, even if anything goes down, I'd expect if the Raptors get back healthy, nothing else falls apart. It's not gonna be hitting thirty nine point five percent from three. I think he's going to start catering up towards 42, 43% from downtown. More spot-ups. He's such a damn good shooter that I think it will start seeing that kind of skyrocket. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, he's shooting 50% on the catch this year, or was when I wrote the piece. I mean, that's insane. And when, La- when Lowry comes back, like you say, he'll get a lot more spot-up chances. He's just He's so elite flying off screens, you know, getting the ball in the corner. He is one of the best catch-and-shoot shooters in the league. Um, he's so good. That's not going down. I mean, 39.5 is coming up. Yeah. Well, that's also highlighting Lowry when he comes back, that A, Van Vliet will get more opportunities as a spot-up shooter. Yes. But also the fact that I'm excited at the end of the year to evaluate how much time Fred spent on ball as opposed to Lowry when they shared the floor because there has been a complete change from the formula the Raptors have used in years past, right? Regarding Lowry, it was Lowry runs the show and he can relocate when DeMar has the ball sometimes. This year, Fred has spent more time on ball when they're sharing the court almost. And it's rapid relocation from Kyle Lowry, trying to utilize him as a shooter and letting Fred run everything. That's such an interesting choice. And it saves Kyle Lowry as far as stamina, as far as all those types of things, and he's been so good attacking downhill, being that type of player. So just, I don't have a question. I just wanted to bring that up, that I think it's it's really cool how the Raptors this year have transitioned Kyle's role, and not only that Kyle has been so good in it, being refreshed and being much better at attacking the rim this year than last year where it was kind of a non-existent part of his game. He was just passing the ball around and shooting threes, obviously but that Fred has stepped up as a creator and a manipulator of the defense, that he's allowed Kyle to do that, and that the defense isn't dropping off, that there's still such a good tandem, whether it's Kyle on ball or Fred on ball. I think that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking with Joe Wolfond at the score the other day, and he he pointed out the same thing. Lowry's numbers finishing this year, I mean, it's almost unprecedented a guard of that size at this age to look like he's tailing off as a finisher in his career you see a downward trajectory and then all of a sudden to become one of the best finishing point guards in the league again I mean that's crazy yeah I I just it's gotten to the point there's a reason I wrote the hall of fame piece for Kyle Lowry which I also I checked yeah I think it was yesterday if you type in Kyle Lowry hall of fame my piece comes up, so that's uh, I feel very happy about that. <laughs> but Kyle Lowry, you just can't doubt him because 
not only, like I mentioned last year, was there a severe drop-off in free throws and attacking of the rim. It seemed like, okay, his athleticism has gone down this road. This is who we're dealing with now. But then in the finals, he was a terror attacking the Warriors. And this year, he is a terror attacking any team. And just that big, beautiful brain of Kyle Lowry's will never not be able to create advantageous situations for him. So I'm, I'm just so pleased with Kyle Lowry and how he's played and, and Van Vliet in tandem. And the last question I have for you before we get into the Twitter questions is, what is your ideal rotation once Lowry and Ibaka get back? Because we've seen Chris Boucher as the first sub of the game. We've seen Hollis Jefferson as the first sub of the game. Terrence Davis. What happens going forward, or what what is your idealized version of what happens going forward? That's a good question. It's something I haven't spent as much time on as I should have. I'm really just working in the very short-term future right now, but um, I think it's obvious that Fred needs to be the starter. I mean, again, some teams, maybe you want to bring him off the bench, but he's just, he's so phenomenal. And they run their starters so long in the first that he doesn't get enough minutes if you if you bring him off the bench. Um, and he's so phenomenal. He needs all those minutes he can get. So I would say probably Serge Ibaka and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson would be my the top two substitutes. Uh, Powell, definitely. But Powell uh, is best against certain teams, obviously, like Milwaukee. Uh, he is, you know, not going to be fantastic in every game in every series. So his role is a little complex because it he really is the the type of pitch that you only use against certain hitters. And so it'll change. There is no idealized situation for Norman Powell. I would say probably um, the closing unit depends on what you need, but maybe a Baca in for Gasol with the uh, with the starters. It's tough to. I feel like I'm not giving any answer. I think the answer is just whatever they need, right? They they have yeah. so many ingredients. No, I think that's it's a it's a super tough question because not only were we at a place before the West Coast road trip where it's like, oh, you don't want to play anybody. Now it's like, well, we want everybody to play. Look how exciting Chris Boucher and Terrence Davis are, and it seems like Matt Thomas, Norm Powell, when everything comes back to normal, those are the guys. And Terrence Davis a little bit. Depends on how the rotation with the point guards shake out. But it seems like those three guys are the ones who are going to get maybe the short end of the stick. Whereas Ibaka, Hollis Jefferson should still be getting huge chunks of minutes. And as far as Norman Powell, I, I wrote this about him in the Hawks game and I'll just read it now. The Hawks, oh sorry, a man who is incapable of malaise, Norman Powell, also had a strong start to the game. His performances, whether good or bad, are almost always described as hyperactive or erratic, which are closer than you think. The tiniest shift in decision-making sends Powell over the 15-point mark with well-timed drives to the cup and terrific spot-up shooting, or one for six from the four with three-plus turnovers. Powell's decisiveness to get to the rim was a necessary and assertive action in the Raptors' offensive scheme as a side-top-side action that generally produces wide-open looks from downtown only succeeded in taking time off the clock early on. The Raptors are taking most of their three-point attempts in transition or as the result of stagnation and a late shot clock. Powell was able to beat the help side defense to the rim in most cases, did a wonderful job of mixing in drives with his spot-up attempts. That's why he's like a funky pitcher you throw into the game, 
against certain teams because most of the NBA's defenses are susceptible to side topside action. And they're supposed to be because that's good basketball. For some strange reason, the Hawks weren't susceptible to it because they just didn't rotate heavily enough to weak positions. So the Raptors were making these side top side passes and plays where they're passing out of advantageous positions. Like once we get to the other side, you'll see it's a wide open three. But the Atlanta defense just didn't respond. So you need a guy who's going to drive to the cup like Norm Powell sometimes. But also, you're going to need people like uh, Terrence Davis, Ronda Hollis Jefferson, Chris Boucher, all these other types of players. And I think you're completely right that maybe it's not even you and I saying, oh, I think it should be this way, this way, and this way. We've seen, and it's been proven so far, that not only is there a bunch of tools in the toolkit, but that Nick Nurse knows how to use them. And maybe that's the best answer regarding the rotation going forward. What do you think? Yeah, trust in Nurse. I think uh, maybe the most interesting question is not who will play when, but who won't play. I think Rondé 100% is keeping his rotation spot. He he may be the best player that's emerged over this. Um, I think the question has to be between Terrence Davis or Chris Boucher. One of those two will probably lose minutes, right? Yeah, and that's... I still haven't seen that much of Chris Boucher in the pick and roll. Have you noticed that too? He hasn't defended that many pick and rolls. And that's what I'm waiting for defensively because he's so good as a help side defender, even though he's foul prone and he's so good running the floor. Even last night against the Hawks, his aggression diving to the rim was such a nice change of pace as opposed to Gasol that it did throw the Hawks for a loop. Injecting that into the game is good, but it also seems like Ibaka does quite a bit of that, although not at the same frenetic pace, but they do have a lot of overlap in what they bring to the Raptors. So even though Boucher has been super fun to watch, and I am admittedly a doubter who has proven wrong 100% as far as Boucher goes this year, I think that he would be the guy, because whether or not Fred Van Vliet, Kyle Lowry how they shake out that starting lineup. I think Terrence Davis, they're still going to need somebody to handle the ball for eight minutes a game, six minutes a game as a primary ball move or something like that. It it depends on the overlap that Nurse does, but I think Davis, there's still going to be a necessity for that. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I think Boucher could be the type of guy who you unveil in a playoff series in like game four, you know, who totally changes the... The texture of quarter three, uh, just he'll play five minutes in a playoff series. He'll score six points, block four shots, and it'll change the game. Um, whether you need to play him consistently during the season to get that, maybe. But he still commits too many mistakes. He still has five or six mistakes a game when he plays real minutes. Uh, un- unforced ones, unnecessary ones. He's still learning the intricacies of the game, of schemes. Uh, and Terrence Davis, that's true also on the defensive end. He's way too foul-prone. He'll make mistakes too. Uh, so it's possible that Nurse chooses to use Pat McCall when he comes back for those eight minutes of dribbling that you, you described. I don't I think want, that's a real I don't want answer. McCaw. I don't want McCaw. The fact I'm of the matter a... is, McCaw does really, really hurt the offense. Just by his presence, the offense is, is a lot harder to create advantages and capitalize on them. 
but he doesn't make the mistakes Terrence Davis does. He's a good defender. That's like Patrick McCaw, when he's above the break, is a menace as a defender. If he didn't die on screens. I mean, his inability to get around screens can be infuriating. And and also, I don't understand how he can't get around screens. He's so thin and lithe. But if he just fixed that one problem, he would be an elite defender. I agree. Yeah, if if Will Barton can get around screens, (laughs) Patrick McCaw can get around screens. But Exactly. Yeah, I... I am very much of the idea that good offense beats good defense. Yeah. Because even though the Raptors won on defense, they certainly did. Kyle Lowry was also pulling some magnificent stuff on the offensive ends. Same with Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. And it's it's still happening this year that Patrick McCaw, when you when you neuter your offense like that, I just think it's very bad. Especially that the Raptors are susceptible to transition offense against them, and that's. Having that type of stuff against good teams, tough look. I yeah, because it just it affects so much of what happens in the offense. It's not just when the ball comes and he misses a shot, something like that. It's just so much of what the offense is working through has to be worked through more often because of McCaw's presence on the floor, and even Terrence Davis sometimes showing a great burst to the rim, drawing a lot of attention with that big running back body getting there. Hitting threes, which I think yep. will taper off as well. But yeah, I'm. I hope it's not McCaw. I don't dislike McCaw or anything. I just I don't think that's the way forward. But I'm also not Nick Nurse or a coach in the NBA, so I'm more than likely wrong. It's curious. The staff is so analytically inclined. You know, Nick Nurse sees what we see and a whole lot more. It is curious the faith that the staff has in McCaw and continues to. Um, we just don't see why, but. There has to be more more to the picture. There is definitely like a very, very minute number of analytics that say like, this guy is the next Robert Ori or something like that. <laughs> and they're like, we got to hang on to him. He's going to change the game in a little bit. But yeah, that's like you said, they have access to so much more. Not only do they see how things go on in practice, and practice yeah. is probably the best predictor of success yep. in the NBA game. And you know, I know you go to practices, but I also know how practices work. It's not like you get to go and watch them work through everything. It's the end of practice. It's That's the way it shakes out. But before Pascal Siakam was really good in the games, he was probably really good in practice. Same with OG, same with Kyle Lowry. So if Patrick McCaw is showing up there, then I have no, I am not disgruntled towards the decision-making regarding that. That's one of my favorite anecdotes about just to continue with that. I mean, they were saying... That, that that Siakam was hitting his threes in practice. You know, they were saying he is a forty percent three point shooter from the corner. I don't care if we see it in games; he is, because their numbers from practice were telling them that. And they have the same cameras set up in practice. They keep stats there. You know, they don't. They aren't just informed by numbers in games. And lo and behold, a year later, he does become a forty percent three point shooter from the quarters. And now this year, he is. Oh my God, he's a good shooter. Oh, I've never I'll seen anything so stupid. I've never seen anything so stupid in the NBA as Siakam's upwards trajectory because crazy. it lays at the feet. Like the progression of him is laid at the feet of every other player who wasn't able to do something or add something to their game. It's how do you reckon with it? How do you this type of progression this late just okay, I'm supposed to do this? Sure, it's a part of my game now. And especially as a fan of DeMar DeRozan, 
I just, I'm like, why didn't you shoot the three, man? Why didn't you incorporate it? When Pascal's like, give me two years, I'll become Steph Curry above the break. I'll, I'll be pulling stuff like you haven't even seen. I don't understand how Pascal's done it. And the other day, Nick Nurse said, you know, they have very long-term packages for how to turn guys into shooters. And the other day, Nick Nurse said Siakam is only on like step three of five or something. He said it'll be two more years before Siakam hits his peak as a shooter. Yeah, I mean, 12 to 18 months, I think, was the Yeah, comment. yeah, that's what it was. Uh, and it was a lot more than just that one. He, he actually gave really good stuff uh, in, that, in that availability at that practice. But it's crazy. I'm so excited to, when I write this piece on Siakam shooting, it should be next week. I'm so excited to ask Nick Nurse, to ask Pascal Siakam, to ask Fred. You know, some guys can't add things like shooting. Why can Siakam do this? Like, what about him makes him able to just add anything? Like, that's crazy. Especially considering that he doesn't have a typical base or up top as far as, like, his jump shot, the mechanics of it. Not to get too much into the weeds about the mechanics, but the simpler your jump shot is, usually the easier it is to build up. I mean, but Siakam's is quite complex, the way he times out, like, his little pigeon-toed jab to swing the right side of his body into a line to get the shot up. Like, you even saw he hit a super awkward um, fade on Jabari Parker on the left, kind of like the left block extended against the Hawks, and it was like his foot swung in, he's pulling up. It looks janky as hell. But it goes in, and it's going in at over 40% from above the break. And it's there's so many complexities to his jump shot that I don't know how they just said, okay, here, we fixed it. But that's that's why they make the big bucks. That is very impressive to me. It's crazy. Never seen anything like it. Uh, <laughs> ready to get into the Twitter questions, though. How are you feeling, Lewis? I'm feeling great. I'm ready for it. All right, listener. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, feel free to join us for the Twitter questions afterwards. Here's the scenario. Your insurance company is denying your long-term disability claim despite the fact that you've paid premiums for years and your own doctor insists that you're not well enough to work. If this sounds familiar, call Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. You'll speak with me, Brian Goldfinger, a licensed and experienced lawyer who practices exclusively on behalf of accident victims, disability claimants, and their families. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. And welcome back. Still Samson Folk hosting, still joined by the fantastic <laughs> Lewis Satsman. You ready to listen and uh, to answer some Twitter questions, sir? Let's do it. All right. The first, from Darth Lean. What is your explanation for why Pascal is not used more in pick and roll, both as roller and handler? As good as Pascal can be in ISO, guard screens unlock effortless baskets for him. Is it about getting reps? If so, I'd rather him get reps in more effective scenarios. Before I swing this over to you, Darth Lean, that is the question. Thank you for asking it. And I didn't bring it up on the podcast because I saw your question. This is so interesting to me because, like you said, it does unlock so many effortless baskets. And also using him, whether it's as the ball handler or the screener, it is such a unique and efficient play to use for his physical profile that I don't understand why they don't go to it more. And I'll now swing it to you, Lewis. I've thought about this a lot, and I do agree with you completely. This is 
may be the question for how far the Raptors go in the playoffs. Uh, but I think the answer is because the Raptors value building offensive possessions differently from the casual or even committed viewer. Um, so, for example, I often see Daniel Hackett, who is a fantastic Twitter follower, writer. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he's phenomenal. He knows basketball and the numbers that inform it inside and out. I see him criticize the Raptors for not running certain aspects of plays quite frequently. And while he is correct on the face of it, such as not using Siakam as the handler in the pick and roll more, I think what the Raptors value more often, the reason why they don't do that, is because they prefer fluidity and uh, natural, you know, organic grace in forming their possessions. Uh, maybe in the playoffs they do turn to what they know will yield buckets, but I think they find it more important both in the short term winning a game and the long term development to just let plays evolve as they will rather than calling the same advantage over and over again. So maybe the Raptors would be better over the regular season if they ran it more. Uh, I actually think that's true. You know, if the Raptors were to just make Siakam the ball handler in a pick and roll 20 times a game, they would probably win four to five more games on the year, if not more. Um, but I don't know if that would serve them better over the long term. And they always have that when the games matter in the playoffs. Yeah, that's that's a good point you bring up is keeping the offense organic and changeable so that it cannot be predictive, so that it cannot be schemed for, I think is a really good thing and really forward thinking and also a luxury that champions have. You get yes. to play this way. You get to mess around this way when you're that damn good, when you have that type of pedigree. I'm glad you brought that up. And then on the other side is... Do you maybe want to give more of those reps to Pascal so that his decision-making when you go to those plays is more organic? You know what I mean? It's finding the healthy balance between the two. And right now it seems like it's almost a non-existent part of Pascal's game. It's something, and you know what? Maybe we'll see it tomorrow. We could very well see, you know, seven to ten possessions of it tomorrow against the Sixers. And I think that would be would be cool to see and also but you bring up a great point the raptors they're not dumb we've actually seen that they're probably the smartest organization in the league and that's why i feel dumb doubting anything they do before the season started i was like ah fred van vliet i like i didn't say fred van vliet was bad i actually said he was very good i just thought he was very good in a certain role and that there were going to be limitations to him growing outside of it the limitations have not really been there i was wrong about that Chris Boucher, also wrong about that, but right about Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, so one for three. And uh, yeah, I have no idea why I would doubt the Raptors, but here I am a little <laughs> bit doubting them. But I think it's uh, you bring up the, the best point, is that the Raptors, like you said, are thinking way ahead, not only as far as building Pascal Siakam's jump shot, but as far as building his shot profile and how he attacks defenses. To think that they're just ignoring the screen and roll involving him as screener and ball handler is isn't obviously it's naive because they're not doing it just because they don't know that it would be obviously advantageous for him there's obviously a bigger idea at hand that was a yeah. great yeah the raptors always think long term uh but that was a great mixture of self-flagellation i was wrong here i was wrong here with also championship flex you know just mixing in the luxury of being champions i like that um 
And there was a great example of the Raptors using him as a in the pick and roll consistently against the Lakers. I mean, they couldn't score. Siakam could not create against Anthony Davis. And then they come out of half into the third quarter. And I think the first four sets in the half court all involved Siakam in the pick and roll with Norman Powell because that was the switch they needed. So they obviously know that this is the weapon they can turn to when they need it. And only to humble the Lakers when they need to. And exactly. in, the, in the finals, when they have to humble the Lakers, Siakam is going to reduce Kyle Kuzma to a speck of dust defensively. Oh, God. oh God, I would love to see that. That was my first tweet, by the way, to ever hit four digits, was my tweet saying Siakam went, you know, I think six for six against Kyle Kuzma. Seven for seven, 18 seven, yeah. points. That was my, my, the first tweet I've ever had go to four digits. That's uh, funny how Lakers Twitter just wants to pile on their own guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a very big Kuzma fan. It's, that is the conversation I have most regarding basketball with my friend Beto down here, my Peruvian Lakers fan friend. <laughs> um, we talk about Kyle Kuzma and uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope probably every day. And uh, <laughs> I rake away at Kyle Kuzma and he hates on Contavious Caldwell Pope, as Lakers fans are wont to do yeah. right now. The next question from Mark Regina. Hi, Mark. You're always asking questions, always responding to things. Appreciate you very much. And you say, what's the next step or steps Pascal needs to take in order to be considered a legit top 10 player? This is also a fantastic question and might tie into the screen and roll thing. What do you think, Lewis? Yeah, for sure. Uh at the risk of repeating myself, I think becoming better in the, in the pick and roll. Also, what he needs to be better at is when he creates an advantage to capitalize on it. He so often will draw a double team and then force a shot. Or he so often will create an open shooter and pass a beat late. Um, not in a good way. I think he, he, that will come with time. He's still learning to be the guy. Um, but his ability to create advantages has been proven elite. I think what he needs to get better at is the ability to capitalize on them. Mm -hmm. That's actually, that's the best point to make. Also that his defense has slipped with the yeah. extra um, amount of baggage he's carrying offensively. And finding the balance between the two is what superstars always manage to do. I think he will get there. I, I have complete trust that Pascal will get there. And not only that, he will get there consistently, but towards the end of games, we'll see him become an absolute monster defensively. Exactly. I expect that to happen. But as Lewis said, as you just said, growing the game in that way and becoming that type of player, it takes time. And uh, Pascal, as much as he's making the right reads parts of times and before he was an offensive juggernaut, when he was a part of the bench mob and he was a guy who just did runouts and occasionally flashed a decent um, amount of playmaking acumen, that part of his game hasn't progressed as fast as the scoring part of his game. And maybe to go back to the Luka Doncic thing, who I know some people thought because he shot bad, he didn't have a very good game against the Raps. But Luka Doncic eviscerated the Raptors' defense. The reads he was making basically made it that the Raptors couldn't double, couldn't throw any extra attention at Doncic because he was so cerebral in the way he was breaking down the Raptors' defense that as soon as a player shifted their body weight, the pass was going their direction. Yeah. And his timing for finding the open guys, and by the way, the Mavericks suck 
when they're shooting off of Luka Doncic creations. I think the league average for um, shots, or I think it's potential assists, is like 54% shooting. Luka Doncic is currently getting, I think, a 49% conversion rate from his team. And considering how good the shots are that he creates, that kind of sucks. But Luka Doncic is a good example of how a guy who is about six foot eight, six foot nine, can have a very, very um, methodical demeanor when getting into the paint, and then using that and using their height to pass with really good passing lanes because of your height and the angles you can put on passes. You don't have to float anything. Pascal's ceiling as a passer should be really high. And that's one of the biggest things he has to work towards. And yeah, that's a great question. But I think the passing, the ability to read the defense and not make the simple pass that you've created, but make the take that little bit extra, that little extra step, maybe that extra half dribble to get the defense stepping or passing a little bit earlier than you might. It's it's all about in his reads. And that's something he's constantly working through, as as Lewis said. Agreed. As usual. Yeah. <laughs> Next one. In Maasai, I trust. And maybe we'll just go over this one kind of quickly because of um, we, we already talked about it a bit, but thoughts on Boucher's role once Serge returns. Lewis, I know I summed it up mostly, but if you have a take on that, go right ahead. I hope he gets minutes. I think he would be valuable in them. I doubt there is a consistent spot there. Yeah, I agree with that. It's as much as I've loved Boucher's um, ascendance, it is or ascension, I should say. It's been really cool to see the games against the Lakers and the Clippers. Was basically who's the guy from the WWE? Vince, uh, McMahon? Vince McMahon. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> that that gif of him getting really excited over and over <laughs> again was what watching um, Chris yeah. Boucher was like in those games. It was euphoric, I would say. And uh, as much as I'd love to recreate it, and that's one of the big appeals of this young season so far as a fan and an analyst is getting to see Raptors players punch way above their weight and to come in and beat a super team like the Lakers on the strength of a Chris Boucher dominant from 11 minutes in the fourth to five minutes left in the fourth, a 10-3 run on the back of Chris Boucher. There are a few things in sports fandom that are like that. It's very exciting and also with Terrence Davis having big games, the Matt Thomas game with the plus 17 and what is it, 16 points. Things like that are really awesome to see. You want to keep seeing that happen, but also it's tough to see the Raptors being this dependent on players that were considered fringe um, before. Not anymore, but that's what they were considered at the time. And the Raptors, even though it's maybe not as fun to see Serge Ibaka come in and put up 21 points as it is to see Chris Boucher run around the floor and get 11 and 13 in 18 minutes, and you're like, what the hell's going on with this Chris Boucher guy? <laughs> like, that's all fun. But it's probably better for the team that Ibaka comes back and eats up most of his minutes, as disappointing that is, because half of the fun of fandom is idealizing players and seeing them grow into different versions of what you thought they would be. And that's yeah. That's how I feel about that. Yeah, I can't believe he... I mean, I wrote that Chris Boucher breakout piece uh, mostly just because I wanted to use that Old Man Ludica reference uh, with his breakout album. Because they're also named both called Chris, so that, you know, wrote itself. But I can't believe he <laughs> proved me almost right. I mean, 
he may not be the most improved player on the team, but what a stretch for him. That's if you go around the mirrors in my house and the windows. It's just in white erase marker. Lewis was right. It's written all, <laughs> all of them. It's a mausoleum of my own my own insecurities and projecting players because <laughs> I, I've been humbled so consistently and so often this year that uh, the only thing I can do is, as Lewis uh, mentioned earlier, self-flagellate and be very... Uh, <laughs> be very uh, self-deprecating to just get myself through it. But yeah, the the next Twitter question from Killa Pascal. You concerned about how much of our offense is pushing the ball. Do you think we can keep this pace for the full season and or playoffs? Before I swing it to you, Lewis, I'll answer this in short. I think Fred's stamina and ability to keep pushing the ball and play 40 minutes of the game and play near all NBA defense is almost wizardry at this point. I know that he is not as good as Pascal, but the things that Fred has done this year border on insanity. Just the amount of workload he's taken on, it's hard to believe. And he is largely responsible for how much the Raptors push the ball. And considering how that bleeds into other parts of the game, it has been so important. It hasn't been talked about as much as it needs to be. I try to highlight in my pieces, but it is a, a real big aspect of the Raptors offense right now they won't have to rely on it as much once Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka are back in tow because those guys are really good half-court scorers especially Serge Ibaka in relation to his transition scoring Kyle Lowry's obviously fantastic at both but they won't be as reliant on it but also like we saw last year there is an ease to which Kyle Lowry can drive a transition offense so it will come easier as well I think too so there's I think there's room for optimism there, and it won't just be Fred VanVleet putting his head down, being like, all right, guys, we're getting the ball up the floor. I'm going to draw three defenders, throw the ball up. Chris Boucher is going to get a putback dunk. We need some offense, guys. Let's go. <laughs> so it won't be just that. There's improvements coming on the way, and, and players like Serge Ibaka and Kyle Lowry will help a lot. I don't know. What do you think, Lewis? That's exactly right. I mean, I am concerned in the short term that that's what they need for offense. But over the long term, exactly as you say, they, they won't need transition to nearly the same extent. Yeah. One more question from Kilo Pascal. He was uh, very curious. So he had two questions in this one. And this one, any concern with Pascal being jump shot first player the last few games? Does that concern you at all? No. No. I'm, I mean, he's playing 40 minutes a game. He's getting hit a lot. I mean, he spends so much time getting fouled. Uh, it would be insane to think that just because he's best at the rim, he should spend an entire season getting mauled at the rim. Um, turning to a jump shot is best for self-preservation over a long season. It is best for long-term development. Uh, and they're winning games, so why not? I also admire it because there were games where he went one for eight and then one for seven, the next game, he'll come back and go five for eight, and it'll be almost all above the break because he's getting, like, no attempts from the corner. He's just pulling up from above the break as if he were Buddy Heald or something. Yeah. And he's hitting a remarkable amount of them. So the indomitable will to shoot jump shots from Pascal Siakam is admirable because most players aren't willing to put them up with that type of abandon, especially if they're his physical body type and especially if they have his physical strengths 
and gameplay game style strengths that allow him to get to the rim. Him working that into his game and above the break pull up three is very commendable to me, and it impresses me to no end. So if there's a few games where he goes one for eight, and maybe he's leaning back a little too far and putting up a lot of short ones, oh well. I mean, what exactly. what do we expect from Pascal at the end of the day? Who who is this player? You look at who he is now. If if somebody showed you Pascal's 34 point game from last night three years ago, you would be gobsmacked. You would be like, what in the hell happened to this kid? Because it's yeah. So Which any type of progression. Here's a this is a story that didn't survive the the editing process of my two for one piece, but maybe my favorite part of that piece that actually I found out. Uh, so doing the research, I was looking. I checked all the two for ones. And Pascal Siakam, uh, before the final game included in my sample size, was five for five on the back end, on the front end of two for one attempts, uh, four for four from deep. And so I was chatting with Fred about it, and I mentioned that to Fred that Siakam had gone four for four from deep in the front end of two for one attempts. And he laughed and said, Well, maybe, you know, I should stop hogging all the shots and give some to him. And then in the first quarter of that game, we were chatting before the um before the orlando game and then in the first quarter of the orlando game it's a two for one the front end exactly the attempt we were looking at fred calls a pick and pop with siakam and gets him a wide open three which i mean maybe because of the conversation with me it's possible uh and siakam missed which is hilarious and then ruined my perfect from deep statistic in the piece but uh Really, really fun part of writing that piece was was that story. If that shot dropped in, they probably would have given you a championship ring. I think you've informed <laughs> winning. In that would have been my whole, If that shot had fallen, I would have deleted the entire piece I had written and just written that one story. And just said, "I am God. Listen to me, <laughs> the shepherd of the people." Wow, that's a that is a shame that that got cut. But you know what? It's uh, I'm glad it's a podcast exclusive. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've I've got all the I've got all the insider details from Kevin Arnovitz, from Blake, from Lewis. So everybody <laughs> listening, make sure you keep coming back and and the starters guys and Je and Tas Mellis. So uh, stay tuned on the podcast. We've got all the insider information. No one pulls guests like you, man. Really, it's it's been a pleasure watching the listening to all of these huge names on your pod. It's fantastic. It has been cool. I have been surprised at how good I've been at it. And I don't know if it's luck. I don't know if for some reason I just have like a good profile picture or email <laughs> picture when I pitch it. And guys are like, ah, you know what? I like the cut of his jib. We'll see what happens. But there's a reason why I leave the Kevin Arnovitz podcast pinned at the top of my profile because if I'm pitching the podcast to you via Twitter, you go to check out my profile and you see Arnovitz came on the podcast. Oh, are you so good that you won't come on the podcast, but Arnovitz came on the podcast? That's exactly my ploy. That's that's the strategy. Yeah, he's a top 10 get. I mean, not many bigger, as far as media, I mean, you could get like Adam Silver. That would be a bigger get. But as far as media members, he would be top 10. I I feel top five. Like yeah, it's he's right there. Is the who are the three big guys for ESPN? Tim Bontemps, Zach Lowe, 
and Kevin Arnovitz. Like, Brian Windhorst is more of an insider than a writer, I think. But Bontemps, Lowe, and Arnovitz seem like the big guys for ESPN as far as writing, right? Yeah. And I, I, he doesn't go on podcasts very often, so I was, it was a very cool opportunity. And shout out to Sam uh, Halako, who hooked it up. And uh, yeah, even when Kevin Arnovitz was saying that he reads the site because sometimes he wants to know what's happening in Raptorland, and he thinks that Raptors Republic is a good place to get that information from, what a compliment, honestly. That is, that is a really cool thing, especially since you know that not only, Lewis, are you able to influence Fred VanVleet's decision-making on the court, but maybe a piece <laughs> of yours, maybe a piece of yours, influences Kevin Arnovitz's take of Fred VanVleet's decisions on the court. How meta have we gotten here? The butterfly effect, baby. Exactly. The ripple effects are far-reaching and very powerful. And I feel like that's a great way to end the podcast. What do you think? That's beautiful, man. Always thank you so, so much. Do you have anything you'd like to recommend to the listeners before we get out of here? A book? Something you've written? Anything like that? <laughs> I would say, uh, no, the, the last week is two of my favorites. Uh, the two-for-one piece for the Raptors and, and then also the big breakdown of Fred's development, what it means for the future. I would say those two pieces. I pinned the two-for-one piece to my Twitter profiles. I'd say go read that one if you haven't. That was a fun one. The two-for-one piece impressed the hell out of me. I thought that was so good. And I will endorse that for maybe the fourth or fifth time. I've done it on every podcast. I've, I did it on Twitter. I've did it in writing. Done it in writing. Jeez. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll keep doing it. But, yeah, it was a, a very good piece and something that hadn't been covered yet in uh, Raptors land. So, Lewis, thank you very much for coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure, as it always is. And uh, you're my guy forever. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your day. And uh, to the listener, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Lewis is in rare air as far as uh, the way he's able to cover the Raptors and influence their on-court decision-making. So I hope you enjoyed it. Whether you're listening to this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day. That counts towards you too, Lewis. And everybody, goodbye. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee, ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply. At the Home Depot, we improve things. This holiday season, we've improved Black Friday. Instead of one day of crazy, we've lowered prices now and they'll stay low all season. From decorations to dishwashers, wreaths to ratchet sets, so sleep in. You're not going to miss Black Friday. Not one little bit. Black Friday improved. The best prices of the year already here at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. U.S. only while supplies last. See store for details. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York.